Hey there. It's been, I believe, over a week. I think it's been about seven or eight days since the last episode, which is a long time for this show. This is what normal podcasts do, who pre-record their episodes and release them on a given day of the week, like they think they're some kind of TV show. They think they're some kind of weekly TV show, or, you know, they have this schedule. They're professionals. You know, we always do things impulsively here. Every night's a school night, where we is I, where there's only one guy. Uh, you know, it's always impulsive, and with impulsivity, it could mean three episodes a day, or it could mean an episode every day, or it could mean, uh, you know, one a week. It could mean I go months. You know, I think there was a, a almost a two-year break at one point many years ago. Because it has been many years. You know, I've been doing this for over seven years, and it's been interesting to watch you know, podcasting become what it is today, although I try not to pay too much attention. And I don't listen to too many, actually. I, I tend to I, I watch more YouTube shows that aren't really podcasts than I do listen to podcasts and follow actual quote-unquote podcasts. But anyway, talking about podcasts is one of the least interesting things that podcasts do, and they do it a lot. So I'm going to avoid that here. But yeah, I'm feeling extremely detached from, I don't want to say everything. I don't feel detached from myself. I don't feel detached from life itself. I'm feeling extremely detached from people. I'm feeling even more detached from current events. I don't feel negative, though. I don't feel angry. I don't feel depressed. You know, so there's no real negative edge to it, which in the past has gone alongside a feeling of detachment, which tells me you're not truly detached if you're feeling negative about that detachment. Because if you're feeling negative in a state of detachment, chances are you're attached to something. It's like with nihilism, where the funniest thing about people who are preaching this sort of you know nihilist outlook, nothing matters. Nothing matters. I'm a millennial. I'm a millennial and nothing matters. The funniest thing about those people is that if you try to tell them something matters, even in a non-argumentative way, even if, you're, even if you're just preaching what you need, as I like to say, all of a sudden they'll be like, no, nothing matters. And it's like, oh, I thought you said nothing matters, but it sure seems like uh, nothing mattering matters to you, which is this funny sort of meta state where it's like nothing matters but you feel the need to vehemently point that out. So it sounds like nothing mattering matters. In which case, your whole your whole house of cards is going to topple. And sometimes people in that state want nothing more than an excuse for things to, to stop mattering. But they become attached to that. So that's kind of what I mean about sometimes in the past I've had this feeling of detachment, but it's coupled with, you know, maybe a, a sort of a slow-burning anger or just some, some kind of negative stance. But that itself is not detachment because you're attached to that negativity and you're just deluding yourself. Because you can use detachment to your advantage. And I'm not going to go on too much longer about this because I don't really know what to say about it. I would summarize it as this. Right now, everything feels even more illusory. It feels even more like an illusion than normal. And you look back, and I mean, it's been 10 days since the inaug, and time has slowed down immensely for me this month. I don't know if everybody else is experiencing that, but time has slowed to a crawl, which is what I want. I've wanted time to slow down, and you can't always control the rate at which time moves in your life, but sometimes you can you can't always do it. I'm not going to say I'm some time mage. Hey, buddy. You all right? Um, chihuahua horking. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm not going to say I'm some sort of, you know, Final Fantasy time mage who can speed time up and slow it down at will. But I think you can concentrate yourself. And some of it, too, is what you're doing. You know, I was talking to a friend last night about weed. And he's trying to cut back on his weed smoking. And I was talking about how, you know, weed is a great way to speed time up. Like, not in the moment. In the given moment, 
weed can actually slow time down. Like, especially if you're having, like, a weed-induced panic attack, time, like, an hour can suddenly become 10 hours, and you're just waiting for it to be over. But in terms of blocks of time, I mean, you can lose an entire month in the blink of an eye if you're smoking a lot of pot. So, you know, you can use these as tools if you want to do that. But without that, without substances, without anything else, because I think, you know, anybody who's had any kind of issue with substances of any kind, like if you've been on a bender, you know, drinking or anything like that, you realize, oh, this this really changes my perception of time. It makes it disappear. But in a sober state of mind, I, I do believe you can slow time down and speed it up and... Uh, it doesn't sound very scientific that you you can speed time up and slow it down. Well, I mean, you know, it sounds annoying to say it, but time is obviously an illusion. Time is obviously colored extremely by what you're feeling and what you're doing, no matter what it is you're doing. Everyone's had the experience of being at a job and... Uh, you know, comedian, this is even just a tired stand-up comedy joke where it's like, you look at your watch and uh, you thought 15 minutes, or, you know, you, you thought four hours went by and it was 15 minutes. You know, that's uh, even a tired old stand-up comedy joke, but the reason it's so tired is because it's relatable. You know, we've all had that experience. In situations we don't want to be in, time can crawl by. So we all have that. We all have that experience of time sort of shifting around us, which what does that tell you? It tells you there's something illusory about it. Am I using that word right? Is that word rooted in, in illusion? It has to be, right? Sometimes I get into the habit of using a word and I realize, you know, maybe I should actually look up the definition of that. Maybe I'm not even pronouncing it right. God forbid. God forbid me. God forbids me from mispronouncing words. Oh, you know why you're in hell? Because you mispronounce too many words. But, uh, yeah, no, things do feel like more of an illusion than usual. And I'm not going to get into current events, but I think that those are playing into that. And I'm only peripherally paying attention because, let me just say it straight up, you know, this whole stock market thing, which I have nothing to say. I have nothing to say about that. I just want to mention it quickly because to me, that's always black magic. It's something where people are inherently deceptive. It's almost all imaginary. Even the people who are, you know, doing things above board are doing things manipulatively. Nobody really understands it. And the people who claim to understand it seem to be, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't even know what to say about them. I don't want to give some kind of judgment. But the people who claim to have some firm understanding of it, I mean, first of all, it's like, it's like looking at one wave of the ocean and pretending to un to understand the entire ocean. And then you realize that the entire ocean is actually just the water in someone's bathtub. And that's how I feel. About it. That's how I feel about it. You know, it's all, it's all smoke and mirrors and it's all some form of very boring black magic. When I say it's black magic, I mean, it's it's some of the most boring black magic you can imagine because I try to avoid black magic of any kind if I can help it. At this point in my life, I you know I don't want to flirt around with any kind of black magic, especially not this boring practical numbers black magic. Uh, but the, the fact that everyone's focused on that, where it's like, oh, the little guy's getting back at the big man. And the big man's uh, stopping the little guy. And then other people are like, well, the, the little guy's actually the problem. And they're they're hurting the big man who, you know, it, it's just, it gets into that. And it's I have no business there, but I just wanted to acknowledge it really quickly. Because to me, that is a sign of the, the great illusion that is going on. And it's one reason I feel so detached. Because I can attach myself to, to certain social and political issues, obviously. This show has gotten into that, which I'm not happy about, but it's just, I think it's inevitable that I was infected by it a little bit, maybe still am. But I'm not feeling terribly attached to any of that right now, I think, which plays into what I'm talking about, where it's like there was this, there was such an intensity to things, and there is such an intensity to things, 
that I think you kind of have to, when you have this feeling of like, I'm not going to think about this, I'm not going to be involved with this in any way right now, you have to kind of enjoy that. Even if it's not pleasurable, you kind of have to enjoy those moments of detachment. But yeah, to me, all that stuff is black magic, all that stuff is pure illusion, and it's... I don't know, I I just see it as a a trick. And you get lost in the weeds, you get lost in in all of these tangled little... You know, it's like the system of tunnels, and and you you think that you're finding a way out, but you just get deeper and deeper in, it branches out, it's it's maze-like. And we do that with everything. You know, we find a way to do that with everything. We do it with our own psychology... We do it with medicine. We do it with science. And I'm gonna—I think just to get myself on track here, because I feel like I'm losing my focus. I just—I want to read a little something, and I, I very well might have read this before. Uh, it, it's from a Buddhist text, and I know everybody loves the Buddhist texts that I read. I don't know. I don't know if they do or don't, but I do. Like it's a handrail. Um, But a man approached the Blessed One and wanted to have all his philosophical questions answered before he would practice. In response, the Buddha said, It is as if a man had been wounded by a poisoned arrow, and when when attended to by a physician were to say, I will not allow you to remove this arrow until I have learned the caste, the age, the occupation, the birthplace, and the motivation of the person who wounded me. That man would die before having learned all this. In exactly the same way, anyone who should say, I will not follow the teaching of the Blessed One until the Blessed One has explained all the multiform truths of the world, that person would die before the Buddha had explained all this. You know, I feel like what that's dealing with is sort of this this reductionist, analytical, this need to get to the bottom of things, this need to completely understand things before we can do anything. And I celebrate the great mystery. I move forward in many ways to honor the great mystery. And I would never want to get to the bottom of it. Yeah, there are situations where it's fun to investigate, figure things out, learn. But when it comes to addressing problems and issues, there's this tendency for us to want to know everything about it. This stuff with the stock market reminds me of that. But what that passage I just read actually makes me think of is psychology and therapy, which help people. One of my best friends is a psychologist, and he helps people. He's always helped people. Since we were kids, he's always been somebody who, and I don't mean this you know, in a mean way, but I would say weak-minded people have always gravitated toward him for guidance. And he's someone too, like, I mean, I, I enjoy talking through issues with him as well, you know, but I would say like certain people who were lost or weak-minded kind of always gravitated toward him looking for some sort of advice or guidance. And so I think he's in the right field. Not that he can only help weak-minded people. I don't mean that at all. No, I think he can help a lot of people. So, you know, I'm not, and I've, I worked in that field, you know, I, I didn't work in actual, I didn't work in an actual mental health practice, but I worked in a business that was entirely dependent on that industry and promoted that industry. And so I do feel like I have some insight into this. As somebody who's not a psychologist, who's never been to therapy myself, I feel I have as much insight into it as, as somebody could could have without directly participating in that side of the industry. And I'm reminded a lot of that passage I just read because it seems to never end. People try to get help, and it seems to open up these tunnels that they just go down endlessly. And that's okay if that's what they want to do. Where it's like there's all, you're always getting to the root of the problem. You're always looking for the root of the problem, which is a good way of thinking. It's good to want to get to the root of an issue if you can find the root. But I think people can get so lost looking for the root that they create, they they open all kinds of doors in their mind, in their life, that they didn't need to, you know, they didn't need to open them. And in some ways, I think they kind of manufactured them. And I've I've known people to do that. I've known people in my life who I won't, I won't name them or give any indication who they are, but I, I feel that their attempts to correct life's issues 
actually created far more issues for them. And worse than that, they think that other people need to go down that road. It's become this kind of trope of... I've seen it online where like there's like jokes about young men being like, oh, you know, I, I'm going to the gym, I'm doing this, I'm feeling great. And then the joke is that like that guy's girlfriend says, yeah, but have you gone to therapy? I think you need therapy. And I feel good. You know, I, I feel good in life, but I've been told that before. I've had two girlfriends say it to me. I've had a relative say it to me. And this is in years past where I wasn't doing entirely well. Like I I was definitely much, I I definitely had more of a slow burning anger. I definitely had a lot more resentment. And that's actually what led me to find my own way. I wasn't going to go to therapy, but I had to find my own way because I don't think that a therapist could have helped me. I don't think that they could have given me any more insight into my life than I had myself. And I would never say anybody else should follow what I do. I'm preaching what I need here. But, you know, I, you know, I stopped consuming substances that I know were detrimental to my life. I got very into fitness and diet. It's what led me to intensify, you know, my spiritual practice. To be very conscious of what I consume, and I don't mean just the diet, and substances. I mean, also just in terms of what I read and what I pay attention to. And when I pay attention to things that are are potentially going to give me a negative reaction, I am 100% conscious of that. I know I'm almost indulging myself in the same way somebody looks at something or or in the same way that somebody is like, oh, well, I'm going to eat this cookie for dessert, but I know it's a dessert and I'm only going to have one cookie. And if you have a discipline... You know, if you can keep yourself to one cookie, beautiful. You have a discipline, uh, you know. Um, And for me, it's the same thing, but with negative things, things that could, could potentially impact my outlook or the way I feel about the world. So, you know, I basically tell myself, I'm going to look at this. I'm going to look at this. I'm going to pay attention to this thing that will piss me off. But I'm going to create kind of a bubble around it. I'm going to create kind of a a force field around it where I'm going to very consciously pay attention to this thing and I'm going to know it and I'm not going to get caught up in the cycle. I don't know. I had this experience many years ago. My friend worked at a bar and I would go there the night she worked and just hang out and talk. And her boss was an older woman, very nice woman and everything, you know, and I have to say that because, but this woman would like, sit at the bar and she was the owner so she, you know she she had you know control of the place but i remember sitting there with her and she was just scrolling through some sort of news app or something i don't know what it was and just letting us know all this horrible news she was like oh my god a plane crashed and 10 children died oh my god the there was a kid who got kidnapped a lot of it had to do with kids you know i think that there's some sort of you know maternal thing where I don't know you pay attention certain people pay attention to what happens to kids bad things that happen to kids but she was just I was watching her just scroll through her phone and read this bad news and I could tell this is just something she does and she felt the need to tell us about it like she almost like she was the town crier doing a service by telling us about something that happened to kids on the other side of the world And what's funny, if I were to dismiss that, like if I were to say, hey, don't tell me about that. Hey, don't tell me about that. You know, if I were to say that to her, she would probably be like, well, fuck you. This is important. Oh, do you not care about the kids? No, I I care about those kids as much as I possibly can. But you're stuck in this loop where you're just you're scrolling through some sort of, I guess, a news app. I don't I don't know what people use to find the news these days. I mean, this is years ago, but uh. I was just, it was really a weird moment for me because I, I, I could tell that this was just, this woman was sort of on autopilot and she kind of thought she was doing a service for everybody. 
And it's not that I, th- I don't think people should read the news. It's not that I don't think people should read about what's happening to kids on the other side of the world. It was that this woman wasn't doing it consciously. And that, that's my point here is that, you know, so I think when you look at stuff like that, when you look at stuff that is going to cause you to attach yourself to it, to respond to it in a certain way, I think you have to be conscious of that. And you almost have to be like, okay, I'm going to, you think about a bird, <laughs> you think about a bird who's like, uh, I don't even know what the bird example is. I was thinking about like these videos of birds I saw where, they're going to do some sort of dance to attract a female and they actually go around on the, the forest floor and they pick up all these twigs and they move them out of the way and they basically create a dance floor. They, they make sure that there are no obstructions on the forest floor and they kind of make a little circle and then they do some sort of mating dance and uh, it's kind of like it's kind of like that with this, where it's almost like when you're gonna look at something that could potentially give you an adverse reaction, I think you almost have to clear a space on the floor and be like, "I'm doing this very deliberately. I'm creating a little dance floor because it kind of is a little dance. It's kind of a little brain dance. When you indulge yourself in things that are gonna piss you off or make you sad, or even for that matter, make you happy. Anything that's going to give you some sort of emotional response, I think you kind of have to, you know, let yourself make a little dance floor and be like, I'm going to do a little brain dance in this space, but it's going to be limited to this space for this specific goal. Which kind of gets me to something I was thinking about. I was thinking about goals earlier. You know, right now I'm, I'm thinking a lot about kind of reinventing myself professionally. And I don't know, I don't want to do that quickly. I don't want to drag it out either, but I don't, I don't want to be too quick. I don't want to be too, even though I can be impulsive, this show is an impulsive show. You know, I don't want to do that too impulsively. And, uh, but, uh, you know, but with that, you know, thinking about goals, you know, cause I'm, I'm surprisingly not a goal oriented person. Like I don't, you know, as much as I talk about, you know, that self-help cliches work, like listing things out, repeating mantras, and even though I don't really do that myself, I have learned how embedding things in your subconscious do orient you toward certain goals. And for me, my goals have always been very general. And I, I feel honestly, I feel sincerely like I've been able to meet many of those goals without even realizing it. Because meeting goals for me means more goals. I know that it's never ending. I don't think there's a certain place or time where I'll say I did it. But I do have to remind myself that I've done certain things that especially at earlier points in my life I would have been more than thrilled to have done and I can't take that for granted. I think there's a difference between taking accomplishments for granted opposed to, you know, feeling like you you finally made it to some absolute point. It's like the the most distant shore that I talk about, where it's like you can fix your sight on the most distant shore, but it's not necessarily about getting to that shore. Because what you encounter along the way very well might be an accomplishment, or it very well might be where you were supposed to go even to begin with, you know, that might be where you were meant to go, even though you were fixed on this even further place and being fixed on that further shore is what got you to the other places. So it's kind of that idea too, but I'm not a terribly goal oriented person. And I I do in many ways take life as it comes. But I have been thinking about, you know, practical ways to kind of reinvent myself or, you know, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of confusion in our world right now. And I think this feeling of kind of detachment, this feeling of just kind of being in, uh, I mean, the, the detachment, I think a lot of it has to do with less with events and more with people. I feel extremely detached from people right now. And my few interactions with people in the flesh haven't really helped that. I always have a good interaction with grocery store clerks. I feel like I, I make it a point, even if the person's one of those like stoic people who doesn't really, they barely even say hello I feel like my interactions with grocery store clerks are good. But it's been about three weeks since I've had any kind of social contact with another human being. Oh, my God, you're so isolated. You know, I I don't feel that way. I don't feel deprived. I'm I'm very, again, very conscious of it. Uh, But, yeah, it's been 
three weeks tomorrow, I think, since I saw somebody I know, a friend or anything like that in person. And I'm okay with that. You know, I'm okay with that. It's just the time in which we are living right now. And when you accept that, you can deal with it. I don't require a lot of social interaction. But, uh, you know, the car battery in my car died. The car battery in my car, it died. And so I was trying to start my car, and I was taking a look at it and everything. And I noticed this person on a bike in my rearview mirror, like, was walking his bike in my kind of like on the sidewalk right where where the sidewalk meets my driveway and they were staring at my car and yeah I mean like you could tell from the sound that the car is not starting and you know you gotta look oh I'm gonna look although in that situation I wouldn't have looked and this it's, it's not because I'm better than this guy on the bike but I've mentioned on here before it's like the rebel in me like if you hear plates crash in the kitchen of a a restaurant Everybody's head turns like, oh, what was that? What was that? Where ever since I was a kid, when that happens, and it's not like it happens all the time, but whenever that's happened, like when you hear somebody drop a plate in a restaurant, I immediately know what that sound is. I know the waiter was carrying too many plates and they dropped a plate. I don't need to look. And I and part of the reason I don't look is just my own inner rebellion, you know, where it's like I just don't need to look. <laughs> and so I feel like if I were walking by a guy who's trying to start his car and I have nothing to offer, I'm not going to stare. What's going on there? What's going on? You know, I'm not going to just impulsively stare. And, and I wasn't bothered by that, just to just continue on with this amazing story. I wasn't bothered by the fact that the guy was staring at, at me trying to start my car. But I noticed it. Because I'm hypervigilant, I'm always checking. If my garage is open, I'm looking around. I don't want somebody to sneak into my garage. But this guy on the bike, you know, I couldn't tell how old he he was. I just saw that he was like a grown man size. And then he was like staring at me trying to start my car. And kind of like dawdling. Like he had been walking his bike normally, but he kind of slowed down to really get a good look at me trying to start my car. Like it was the most interesting thing he had ever seen. And so I got out of my car and I was, you know, I popped the hood and I was just, I was taking a look at some things and, and I, with no idea what I'm doing. I don't know what I was hoping to, <laughs> I don't know what, I, you know, I know nothing about cars. I don't know what I was hoping to figure out by looking at my engine, but it, I felt the need to do it. But then the guy, he came back, like he had passed my house already and then he walked his bike back, you know, and then. I realized he was probably probably over 18, but a young man. He was either, either an older teenager, maybe at the absolute oldest, early 20s. And he, he says to me, in a very like, you know, I'm trying to be polite here. In a very, like, let's just say everyone talks about the spectrum these days. In a very sort of, he gave he gave off a very sort of spectrumy vibe, like not like he's deep on the spectrum, but definitely like maybe there's a little bit of that. And who knows? I mean, the, all these kids who are in these foundational years of their life have been isolated for a year. Who knows what that's done to their social development? But he's like, your car's not starting. I can't do his voice, but and I, I'm of course stressed out. And I, I'm like, no, obviously, you know, no, I, you know, I'm just, I just said no. And then he just stared at me for a minute and there was this pregnant pause. And like, obviously I'm doing something, but it was weird that like he had passed by really slowly earlier, like watch, like m making this spectacle out of me trying to start my car. And then like a minute later, he walks his bike back. I think he even had to walk in reverse. Like, he'd been hanging out in front of my house just, like, waiting to say something to me. And he was like, oh, your car's not starting? In this really deadpan voice. And I was like, no. And I kind of, like, waited for him to say more because there was this pregnant pause. Like, it was the sort of thing where you would think that, like, in a normal conversation, you would think that he would say, I can help you. Or that he would he would give some kind of insight. Like, it was, like, that sort of feeling. 
Like I had a guy follow me once because my car was dented. There was a, the bumper was badly dented from an accident and he was in a truck and he followed me back to my house and he said, oh, you know, you got, you know, some damage on the back of your car. And I was like, yeah. And he was like, I, I run a, a car repair business. You know, he's trying to generate business. So it made sense, you know, even though it was weird that he followed me and stuff. It was like he brought it up because he had a service that he wanted to offer. You know, he was trying to generate business. So I, it wasn't offensive and he was nice. But this kid, it was like I couldn't understand what he wanted from me. And he just stood there staring at me after he, he mentioned my car not starting. And I was like, I was honestly kind of a dick because I'm just like, I'm obviously stressed out. You're standing in my driveway pretty much I just couldn't understand what it was and and then I, I watched him leave you know I watched him get back on his bike and ride away but I, I couldn't tell what he wanted from me you know and I know this is ridiculous I know it's like oh my god this young man was watching me try to start my car and then he acknowledged it and didn't have anything else to say but it just, I was like, I can't afford for my social interactions to be this right now. I'm having very few social interactions, and I'm doing okay with that. I'm fine with that. But I can't really deal with my one non-store-related interaction to be this kid just staring at me in my driveway, making a weird comment while I try to fix my car. I'm like, I, it's, I think I said this too at the start of Coroni Vibe where that guy freaked out on me for having too many items in the express line of the grocery store checkout, where I said, I can't afford for my few interactions to be like this right now. I can afford it. I can deal with it without losing my mind. But it's like, just as a, as a general philosophical approach, if you are in a state of isolation, if you are in a time of great political tension, of uncertainty, and again, isolation... I don't feel isolated. I don't feel imprisoned. I actually feel quite free in many ways. But, you know, I, I can't deal with my one interaction of the week being this kid just kind of blankly staring at me for a few minutes in my driveway. I was just like, what's he going to do? Like, I didn't want to leave the house. Like, not because I was afraid of him, but I was just like, because I, I was going to be going to the store, and I was just like... I don't want to leave my house unattended with this guy just lingering around. But anyway, I, I recovered. I recovered, and I'm doing okay. And guys, guys, I'm doing okay. Are you okay? I'm going to talk to my non-existent therapist about it. But anyway, it's just something I was aware of where I was just like, man, like I can't, these can't be my only interactions right now. And I, you know, I'm finding that my interactions with a lot of people... Our, the, the energy isn't equal. Like I went through a phase where I was interacting with a lot of people and, and everybody was on the same page. And then with this feeling of detachment, I've been hearing from a couple people. I've, I've talked on the phone to people and you can feel the disconnect and that's okay. You can't let that get to you, but you can feel the disconnect. And there's certain people who are an important part of my life who I haven't been in touch with because the disconnect is overwhelming and they don't understand me. And this sounds like a therapy session right now, but it's like the thing that people need to understand is that you don't need to understand me, but don't misunderstand me because I don't understand me, but I have a pretty good grip on me. I got a pretty good grip. So I think that's an important approach to life is to be like, I don't need people to understand me. I just don't want them to misunderstand me. Because the reality of who I am on this planet is somewhere in between those things. You know, it's somewhere in between those things. And people analyze you. Because something that I had to stop myself from doing to other people is analyzing them. And look at me talking about this random kid on the bike. He's probably on the autism spectrum. Which I don't, everybody says, you know, you hear that all the time. Like my neighbor who's a completely, like granted she's very... You know, I, I hate to use this word, but she's very woke. But I, I have a very good rapport with her. I, I'm so happy to have them as neighbors. But she, we were having a conversation about something, and she mentioned being on the autism spectrum. And I'm just like, no. 
you know, I don't know what goes on in your downtime, but I was just like, you know, maybe you get stoned and think you're autistic, <laughs> you know, because I, cause I do feel like marijuana is the, can, can kind of put you into this temporarily autistic state. Maybe the kid I saw was stoned. Maybe the kid who was staring at me tried to start my car and, t- and made some weird empty comment was stoned. But, you know, I, I don't know. I just I'll hear people volunteer that. And I'm just like, I don't know. I don't know that you are. I know that a lot of people are. But we've entered into this world of like self-diagnosis and diagnosing others. And I guess that gets into the, the Buddhist passage I read where the guy with the poisoned arrow in him, you know, the diagnosis is clear. He was shot with a poisoned arrow. But if he wants to really dig in and analyze this, he's going to die before before he has a chance to remove the poisoned arrow, before they have a chance to actually solve the real issue that is here and and right now. And I, I think that we're all kind of trying to analyze all of these little details. We're trying to diagnose issues that aren't the actual diagnosis. And part of that is people self-diagnosing themselves psychologically. The reason I brought up psychology and kind of spun off into all this stuff is because while psychology has been just a massive help for people, I would never take that away. I would never take away the fact that psychology, mental health, therapy, all of this stuff has been, it's given people great tools for understanding themselves and how they can and should interact with the world and the people around them. And I've seen it benefit people. I have actually seen it benefit people. But it does color their vision of the world, where they start to think other people need this. Or, I think the worst of all for me, this is what's been bothering me lately, actually. <laughs> this, out of all the, the kid, the kid on the bike is nothing compared to this. No, but what's been bothering me lately is the number of people who talk in those terms, in terms that they have learned through therapy. And to me, it's unbearable. (laughs) I can't deal with it. Where people who have been either to therapy themselves, or they are just somehow immersed in that industry, because that industry has kind of attached itself to a lot of other aspects of our lives. The mental health industry has become very mainstream in how people see the world. And as a result, there are people who talk to you in casual conversation as if they are a therapist. The sort of terminology they use. Growth. Empathy. A whole list of other terms that you can tell they learned from either their therapist or from just paying too much attention to the mental health uh, industry. And there are certain people who are an important part of my life who I actually dread talking to right now. And I think it's been exacerbated by the last year. And again, it gets into this idea of diagnosis. Where you saw with Trumpsfeld where everyone was diagnosing him, which, you know, be my guest. I, I, I couldn't care less if you diagnose him, but, oh, he, he obviously suffers from an acute case of narcissism and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's funny, too, like when people learned that narcissism was diagnosable or they learned that sociopathy was diagnosable, that those were real things that exist in our world, suddenly they start seeing it everywhere. They start seeing opportunities to use those words. They use those words to try to understand the world around them. And to me, it's just annoying. And and this emphasis on self-diagnosis, too, where you see where people are like, I'm a mental health survivor. I, I, I'm bipolar. I suffer from depression. And, you know, those are great. Those words are themselves tools. But I think people pigeonhole themselves. They start to see, while those things exist in the sense that there are trends among people. There are common threads, and those common threads can be worked out through psychological study and mental health therapy. They're placeholders. They're temporary. Our understanding is temporary. And I think that people, they try to get down into the issues that created who they are, 
and they'll analyze, you know, their their parental background, childhood trauma, and I think those things are important. I think that's an important part of that process of getting help. I mean, no doubt it is. I would never say that trying to understand your history and why certain events made you who you are, possibly for the worse, I would never say that that's not important. But it reminds me of Carl Jung, and there was something where in one of his books I read, he was talking about how, you know, there are different types of people, and some people look at their parents and they say, they're people. For better and and worse and everything in between, they're people. And they kind of have an understanding as to what made their parents who they are and what made their parents who they are in relation to them. And he says, you know, other people, though, no matter what they do in life, they continue to see their parents as these looming larger-than-life figures. And I think I know somebody who falls into the latter category, and it, it makes it extremely difficult to talk about ourselves even as individuals, because this person has such a fundamentally different view of, you know, their parents and what made their parents who they are and the role that their parents continue to play in their life. And I'm just like, you know, I don't feel like we can actually talk as peers, unfortunately. And this isn't me being self-superior. I'm just simply stating it, you know, because it's come up time and time again. And everybody has their own experience. And I would never discount somebody's perspective or their experience, but it is something that is... It adds to the disconnect that you feel with people where something as fundamental as that, you know, it, it, you just can't find common ground. And when you know somebody like that, you see where like it seems like they're always digging to try to find the source of their issues. And they're also trying to dig to find the source of your issues because I'm not without issues. You know, obviously, if you listen to this show, you know, I have plenty of issues. You know, I'm filled with neuroses. But uh, the problem is that people who have gone down that path, and this is what I talk about, people who have been to therapy or have otherwise attached themselves to the, the ideas of the mental health industry, they're not only endlessly digging for, I mean, it's sort of like the endless pursuit of jewel, but they're looking for a bad jewel. They're looking for the source of all their problems, and it takes them down so many roads, and it's like the guy with the poisoned arrow wanting to know a detailed background of the guy who shot the arrow, rather than just addressing the issue with the arrow itself. And for me, like, when I started feeling good, because the thing is, when you say you feel good, people sometimes don't believe you. Like, for me personally... As far as my attitude toward life goes, I feel great about life. There's no, you know, there's no delusion there. I am astonished and impressed, and even when I'm stressed, I'm, <laughs> I'm astonished and I'm impressed, even when I'm stressed. And it's true, but people have a tendency to not believe you. And uh, maybe this is just me imagining these phantoms that I like to invoke, these little phantoms who are like, he's he's lying, he's a hypocrite. You know, maybe I'm just imagining these phantoms again, except sometimes you interact with those phantoms in the form of people you know. And this, I got to say too, this isn't prompted by anything that's happened recently. It's just been something that's on my mind because of my feeling of disconnection from certain people. And... Uh, when I decided to improve my life, you know, by, you know, getting sober, taking my discipline more seriously, substantially improving my diet, these very outward things as well as deeply inward, it was both of those things, it was all of the above, piece by piece, and I treated it like an experiment, I didn't know what I was doing, but when I took that road, you know, I... I think that I focused on the arrow, and I didn't think about it in those terms, but I think I had spent years kind of trying to figure out what it was that was agitating me, what it was that was influencing negative impulses, and I think it was from the deeper I tried to analyze, the deeper I tried to, you know, separate everything into different components that make me who I am, 
the more I was actually just surrounded by negative thoughts. Whereas when I actually decided to just pull the arrow out, and maybe it's not out. I don't feel that the poison is in my bloodstream. But, you know, maybe life is just slowly pulling the arrow out that somebody shot into you. And uh, you're lucky if you ever get it out. And maybe you don't. Maybe that's the most distant shore that I brought up earlier. You know, maybe that you're always going to be trying to pull the poisoned arrow out as a human being. And you never actually pull it out until you die. But just the fact that you're trying. Just the fact, in the same way that you're heading to that most distant shore in your little boat. And you might never get there, but the process of getting there is what makes life fulfilling. It's what makes you actually accomplish other things that aren't on that distant shore, but you nonetheless accomplish them. You know, maybe that's comparable to slowly pulling that poisoned arrow out. But the point is, you have to focus on that poisoned arrow. You have to know that that's actually what you need to be doing. Not trying to understand who shot it. And if you keep getting shot with a bunch of poison arrows, maybe then you start asking, who shot this arrow? What was their age, name, you know, background? Like that little passage I read, you know, which is very funny. I found a lot of humor in that. Um, but, uh, you know, you can torture yourself with those kinds of details when it's like this arrow is in you. And yeah, you need to watch out. You need to make sure that you don't put yourself in a position to keep getting shot with poisoned arrows. And for all I know, you know, I don't know that you ever get shot with more than one. I don't know that it's even possible to get shot with more than one poisoned arrow in life. It might just always be the same arrow from the start. But, uh, you know, I think life is just slowly pulling that arrow out. And you might never actually physically get it out because it's not physical at all. Because that arrow, it, it turns out it didn't pierce your body. It pierced your soul. And at the very least, though, in slowly pulling it out, the poison is no longer getting into your bloodstream. And uh, But other people, they're always looking for someone to blame. They're always, they want to know not just who to blame, but how to blame them. They want to diagnose the person who shot them with that arrow. And I got news for you. That person has a poison arrow in them too. That person who shot the poison arrow into you has a poison arrow in them too. Um, and, you know, it might not even have been a person. It might have been a floating little cherub. They might have had good intentions for that arrow. Cupid might have been going around thinking, you know, I'm going to shoot arrows into people to make them fall in love, but he he himself didn't realize it was a poisoned arrow. Now we're, we're really getting out there. But it's like that James O'Gwynn country song I played on every night's a school night, Cupid's high-powered rifle. Cupid thought he was shooting arrows into people, but he, he was shooting people with poison bullets in his high-powered rifle. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't know. Even me just making this joke is a form of, like, trying to figure it all out, which is not what I want to do. Because this plays into, two people dying on good terms, you know, because you can always say, like, tomorrow is a better day to die. I'm thinking of Bathory. Is it a fine day to die? Whatever that song is. Um, but uh, you kind of have to treat every day like a fine day to die. If you're going to be satisfied at all with this whole experience of life, you know, you, you kind of have to look at it all as a fine day to die. Because you can always look at tomorrow, you can always think about the future and be like, oh, well, I'll be, I'll be ready to die tomorrow. I'll, I'll be ready to die in a satisfying way after coronavirus. It doesn't mean you shouldn't have goals. It doesn't mean you shouldn't be motivated and heading somewhere but there is this tendency to kind of think oh well I'll be I'll be more ready to die when I do something if you've ever been creative you know like I've recorded albums and things and uh, you, you always kind of think oh this is going to be the one I'll be ready to die once this is released with 200 copies I'll be ready to die after this comes out 
I mean, art, you know, I'll be ready to die after I finish this drawing. And then you finish that drawing and you're like, eh, you know, I, I, I'm still not there. I'm still not there. I, I feel that way constantly. But I enjoy that process. I enjoy that process of being like, okay, well, I finished something. I thought that I was going to feel that sense of completion. I thought that I was going to feel like some goal was met when I finished that thing when I did this episode. You know what I mean? Like, I feel that a lot. Like, sometimes I'll record these episodes and I'll think, oh, I finally did it. I finally said the things that I meant to say all along, and I'm just going to rest on this for a while. I'm just going to rest on this note, and I finally said all the things that I wanted to say about something that mattered to me. Give it an hour. Give it ten minutes. And it's like, oh, that's old hat. That's old hat. You know, so it happens with everything you do. I mean, people, they get into these loops. I mean, substance abuse is a lot like that. I imagine people who go to therapy experience that, oh, I'm finally untangling the mess. And again, like just to give a kind of a cap on that whole topic, because I'm probably not qualified to talk about what goes on in, uh, you know, like mental health sessions and therapy sessions. I'm not qualified to talk about that, given I've never been there. And I don't plan on going there. No matter how much people think, uh, you know, as, uh, people have never insisted I go. You know, I've just, it's been, there's three women, two of them I dated, one of them is in my life in another way, who have, have recommended it. But there are also people who were kind of immersed in that, for lack of a better word, subculture. Because I do feel like that, like therapy is this weird subculture where you pick up this kind of cult-like language and think that, just because this is a tool that we can use to help people right now, we've figured it out, you know. But uh, anyway, I don't know what goes on in, in mental health sessions um, but uh, or why I'm even talking about it again. I guess I was going to try to put a cap on it. Oh, I guess the cap on it is that that's obviously an effective tool. The mental health industry provides effective tools, but it is an industry it is a temporary way of understanding our minds and the way that we operate in the world. And you can't forget that. And you also can't see the world in those terms because that is a way that you've developed to try to understand yourself in the world, but it's not the world. It's not life. And people will look back on it and say, oh, it was cute what they thought then. In the same way that you look back on the way people thought about the mind and say, oh, isn't that quaint? Ain't that quaint? Ain't that quaint? You know, in the same way that you look back on people from hundreds or thousands of years ago and you see them that way, they will see you that way because that is the process. Our understanding isn't wrong. Our understanding of things during the time in which we live, it's not wrong, but it's temporary. It's a temporary way of understanding all of this. And you don't want that to distract you from pulling the darn arrow out slowly, gradually over your entire life. Because you know what? The reality is some people push the arrow in deeper. And some of that is that they're looking for something. They think that they're going to find it by jamming the arrow in deeper. And they're only going to get more tortured. They're only going to get more confused. Why is this arrow not going anywhere? I think I need to, you know, analyze this. I need to do this, blah, blah, blah. And uh, it's like with the scientific process. Because, you know, what that passage reminded me of, too, not to, not to go on a science tangent, although it's closely related to the psychology stuff I'm talking about. I think I see those things in tandem. But, you know, when it says... Uh, I will not allow you to remove this arrow until I have learned the caste, the age, the occupation, the birthplace, and the motivation of the person who wounded me. I mean, that sounds like psychology right there, the motivation of the person who wounded me. But that whole thing, that analytical approach, that reductionist approach, it reminds me a lot of how people approach science, where they think we need to, ha we need to understand everything. Even though people who study science know better than anybody that it is a process that is, that is constantly changing, and even in the span of a year, scientific assumptions become absurd. 
we're constantly proving ourselves wrong. But yet there's this encouragement to, there's this faith in science. And I don't think it's wrong to have faith in it. But it's wrong to become a zealot about science. And you're not even supposed to joke about it. That's how you know that there's a a strong degree of religious zealotry when it comes to science. It's because people don't even want you to joke about it. And when someone says, oh, that will cause harm. That's pseudoscience that will cause harm. I don't like hearing that. I don't like hearing people say harm. It's very manipulative. It's the same way that people have abstracted violence, they've abstracted danger, and they use it to wield power. When they say somebody is dangerous or violent who has done nothing violent, what are they really talking about? What are they really talking about? When someone says that expressing an opinion about our material existence is harmful, what are they really talking about? You know, I joke about climate change. I believe in climate change. I call it the apocalypse, which people don't like. Oh, those Christians are so stupid with their visions of the apocalypse. They need to worry about climate change. Cool, you came up with a new placeholder word for something that everybody from every belief system has ever worried about. The end of the world. You're both worried about eschaton. You're both worried about Ragnarok. You're both worried about something that I've talked about on here all the time, all the parallels uh, and horseshoe theories that, that connect secular liberalism to religious fundamentalism, one of which is this belief in the apocalypse. And they both see signs of it everywhere, and I believe it. I believe them all. I believe that an apocalypse is likely... As above, so below, we as individuals die. That probably means that our planet dies. That probably means that our universe dies. And we shouldn't do anything to speed that process up or encourage it. It's not that I denounce some of the uh, advice of climate scientists, but I also joke about it, and people don't like that. And I'm not trying to get on some like, I'm a victim because people don't like my jokes. Nobody's ever actually said anything to me. But I I know that I've made people uncomfortable before because I'll say like, I think climate change is real. The apocalypse. But I think it's also funny. Oh, the end of the world. I did a video years ago on like a social media account where I was like, hey, all my favorite animals are going to die too, guys. You know, uh, I'm as invested in this as everybody. It's like with coronavirus. Like, I think I had coronavirus and it it fucked my lung up. But I joke, oh, I think coronavirus is a hoax, but it's the hoax that damaged my lung. Nothing is exempt from... And to me, if you can be irreverent about something without being personally insulting to somebody, if you can just... If you can approach the world with a general irreverence, you have more control over yourself, more control over your environment than you realize. And if you're not doing it, if you're not trying to shoot that as an arrow, going back to the arrow idea, if you're not trying to shoot your irreverence at somebody or something, as if you're not trying to use it as a weapon, but as just kind of a way of dealing with what it is to be alive, bless you. Because that's the approach I take where it's like, I, be- I believe in climate change. I believe in the apocalypse. But I also believe that as somebody who's as invested in that as anybody else, as somebody who will be as affected by it as everybody else, I'm allowed to joke about it. I'm allowed to joke about it. I, I believe I am. And I believe that it actually makes me stronger. But someone would say that's harmful. Joking about climate change is an act of harm. Joking about coronavirus. You're harming somebody. You're harming somebody. You know, it's, it's just, it's insane. The way that we kind of prescribe this power to other people where you can't even give an opinion. You can't even make a joke without harming somebody. And there's a time and a place for jokes. It's not that I feel that every single 
crack needs to be filled with irreverent humor. I don't feel that way at all. Even though I think you can joke about death, I'm not going to go to somebody's grandma's funeral and be like, Ba-dum-tsh. hey, uh, hey, people, uh, I'm going to do a stand-up comedy set about death at your grandma's funeral. No, of course not. You don't have to fill every crack with irreverent humor. But if you're in your own space, if you're if you're in your own time and place, if people have to seek you out, or people kind of know, you know, if if you if it's with people you know, things like that, you know, you can do it, and you'll you'll probably be stronger for it. Because to me, humor is one of the best ways to slowly pull that arrow out. But humor is often one of the most easily misunderstood things, especially irreverent humor, where if you're being irreverent, someone thinks that you're shooting an arrow at them, you're shooting an arrow at everyone, you're causing harm. Get a grip. Get a grip on your own arrow. Because when you slowly pull that poisoned arrow out of yourself, you no longer feel like everybody else is shooting that arrow at you. And right now, in feeling very disconnected from people, in feeling very, you know, uh, disengaged, honestly, with what everybody's focused on, and not being, not really relating to people right now. When you get in that mindset, especially in this state of isolation, it's very easy to think that other people are out to get you or hurting you. And that's why I make it a point to say, even though I feel this way, even though I feel very disconnected, I don't feel that anybody else is causing me any harm or trouble. I don't feel that anybody else is shooting that arrow into me because it's already been in me for a very long time and I've been slowly pulling it out. That kid who slowly walked by my car as I was trying to start it with his bike and hung around for way too long. That asshole. That freaking asshole. <laughs> you know, he, uh, he wasn't shooting a poison arrow at me. Although I had to kind of, I had to keep an eye on him for a second because I was like, what's he doing? Why is he hanging out in my driveway watching me stress out about my car? Why did he have to say something about, why did he have to point out the obvious? Having trouble starting your car? And then wait around for a second as if he was going to say something else and then never say it. You're stressing me out, kid. You know, but that he wasn't shooting a poison arrow at me. He's probably just uh, got some social issues. He's he's what they call a dork. Remember when autistic people were just called dorks? Can't say that. Oh my God, the harm you're causing! The harm you're causing! You know, I'm a harm causer. I'm the great harm causer. Um, but uh, no, but pulling that arrow out of yourself—it's a great way to. When you pull that arrow slowly out of yourself, that's a good. You're focused on your own arrow, and therefore you're probably not pushing other people's arrows further into them because you can do that, but other people have to let you do that. And that's why, even though I feel this disconnect with people, even people I love, I'm not letting them push the arrow in deeper. Even though I could, I could easily let them do that. But I'm not going to because. I'm focused on pulling my arrow out slowly, and I know that I can't achieve that. I know that the tip of that arrow is not going to be outside of my flesh, probably until the day I die, and even then, who knows what happens. You might die, and then another arrow just inserts itself into your soul for the next life. <laughs> you know, you know. I, I never want to imagine that the arrow is going to be completely gone. Um... And uh, I know that next time, if I'm ever out in my driveway again trying to start my car and that kid comes by again, let me tell you, I'm going to say, I'm going to tell him right to his face, I'm not going to let you shoot a poison arrow into me. I already got a poison arrow in me and I've been pulling it out for years. I'm not going to let you with your bike helmet on and your bicycle walking alongside you. Why, Why aren't you riding your bike? Why aren't you riding your bike? Do you know that I'm neurotic to begin with? And you're hanging out in my driveway? Why are you walking your bike and not riding it? Is it so that you can more easily shoot poisoned arrows? Because see, if you're walking your bike, it means your arms can be a little more free to shoot poison arrows into me. 
No, we do have that attitude in life, though, where it's like, people are shooting poison arrows into me. And it's like, no, it's always been the same poison arrow. You've been letting people push it in further, which is in and of itself you pushing it in. You allow these things. So don't get lost in the weeds. Don't get distracted. Don't get overly scientific about where that arrow came from. Where who made this arrow? Don't get lost in that. Let the let the arrow be a mystery. Cuz the truth is that arrow came into you. That the arrow pierced you under very mysterious circumstances. Somebody didn't just shoot it. Another human being, I can promise you, didn't just shoot that arrow. You were born with that arrow inside of you. And when you stop worrying about where it came from, what the arrow is made out of, who shot it, all of that stuff, you can actually start the process of pulling it out. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free.